Let's kick off. So hi, everyone. Um, so I'm, I'm Julia, and welcome to Health Matters. Uh, this is where we're talking to amazing founders, clinicians, academics, and investors, all on the front line of health innovation. I'm a general partner at Local Globe and Latitude, where I lead investments in health. Um, and this is my co-host, Ekta. Hi, um, everyone. My, yeah, my name is Ekta. My background is I'm a venture investor, having spent quite a number of years in the city. And I'm also a non-exec director at the Royal Free London and, and vice chair of the Royal Free London charity. Great. And, um, and I'd like to introduce our guest today is Kamalini Ramdas. Uh, she's a professor of management science and operations at uh, London Business School. Uh, and she's really a world leading academic in innovation and healthcare delivery and, and especially known for her work around group medical appointments. Um, and the soul uh, on uh, our team has known Camellini for many years. And we started working with Camellini on a COVID research project over a year ago here um, at, at Local Globe. And, um, and I guess in my role as governor of Edith Neville uh, Primary School, I had heard from the head teacher that after lockdown one, uh, many parents were afraid to bring their children to school. And we thought that COVID testing and access to information at a community level might enable parents to get comfortable with bringing their kids to school. Um, so we also knew that we wanted to ground our work in research so that we could share our learnings with, with others. And that's when we reached out to, to Camelini. Um, and we absolutely want to dig into more about, about our work that we did together, Camelini, which has been so amazing. But, um, but I guess before we do that, um, as, as someone who is such a, a leader in, in the space of, of innovation and healthcare delivery, I just wanted to like go way back and, and um, ask you how did you come to focus on, on healthcare innovation even before it was a, a hot topic um, and, and would love to hear more about your journey to, to LBS. Thank you so much, Julia. And what I want to do, I will go back to that time when I started to get into healthcare, but I first want to say that uh, in the past year, one of the high points of the past year has been the relationship that I've built with you, that we have built together in the uh, work that we have done related to COVID. That's definitely been a high point for me. And um, in fact, uh, I think that relationships are absolutely fundamental to big shifts in value creation, which I'll talk more about. But you asked me how I started to get interested in healthcare. And really the truth is it was a relationship. I had a colleague and close friend at the Darden School, Elizabeth Ticeberg. And over the years I was watching Elizabeth while she was extremely immersed in work in healthcare. She wrote a book called Redefining Healthcare with Michael Porter, which was published uh, in 2006. And I saw that entire process and I saw the level of uh, intense engagement and that really motivated me and that's really how I got interested in healthcare at a time when it wasn't a very fashionable uh, subject. That sounds really... Um, and then, you know, I was... Uh, sorry, yeah, Hector, you were going to say something? No, 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 sorry, you carry on. Yeah, I was going to say that, uh, so I started to work on healthcare when I was um, at the Darton School at the University of Virginia and uh, uh, at some point, uh, London Business School um, approached me and 
um, asked if I would be interested in moving to London. And, uh, you know, we considered it as a family and we thought it was an exciting thing to do. And that's how I uh, came to London, to which, of course, resulted in building a whole different and new set of relationships. Exactly. Brilliant. And um, when you, um, you you work on the sort of the virtual appointments sphere and how did you how did you come across this and how did you sort of think this is where I'm going to go and this is where value I think value can be added? That also goes a long time ago and it goes back to Elizabeth. In fact, Elizabeth Teisberg introduced me to a doctor at the University of Virginia Hospital who was a cardiologist and uh, that doctor, Amy Tucker, was thinking of uh, how she could uh, improve outcomes at her clinic massively while also reducing costs. So she kept thinking about this. And then she decided she was going to try this idea of uh, group or shared medical appointments. That was not virtual at that time. The idea was basically that if you have multiple patients who have a similar condition, let's say a bunch of folks who have uh, cardiac issues, not having a heart attack, not an emergency situation, but who may have risk factors, for instance, for cardiac disease, or who might all have diabetes. Basically, a shared appointment is one in which all these patients come at once to meet the clinician. And then the clinician gives one-on-one attention to every patient, one by one. So what happens is you lose confidentiality, but you basically, the patients in that group get to hear each other's individual appointments. And so when I first met Dr. Tucker and I saw this, I was completely blown away because what I realized is that here there was the opportunity to massively um, improve outcomes because patients were getting much more information and again, what I said about relationships, this basically basically is allowing um, a support group to enter into a doctor's office. So it's all about peer relationships. And at the same time, the doctor or the clinician would save time because you don't need to repeat the same information again and again. Instead, you can get into deeper interactions, which also build deeper relationships. And so when I saw this, I was just blown away and I thought, um, everyone should do this, not just healthcare delivery, but many other kinds of service delivery. There's lots of opportunity. If you question that fundamental of how you interact with others, you could unleash tremendous value creation. So that's where it all uh, started, in fact, uh, Eka. I mean, and I, I agree with you. I, I, but as soon as I read your, your paper, Kamalini, about, about this, um, and also, um, when we started to do research about um, um, about potential group shared appointments, the fact that there are now there's now an an approved uh, group of nurses that are actually developing these shared appointments uh, for the NHS, and I and I um, I just thought that it was brilliant, and I really believe that that it will lead to to better 
better outcomes for patients because just this thing about in, like sharing information in an in an appointment, um, you I always know that every time I unless I have a list of questions that is prepared when I go to the doctor, you forget and then. But if you're in a group, then someone else will ask a question that you hadn't thought of, and it it just leads to better learning. I think. So um, I think it's hugely insightful and, and exciting as a concept. Um, I guess I, I, we, I wanted to ask you next, like jumping, jumping ahead a, li a little bit, but um, at the start of the pandemic, obviously as an academic, um, there is a lot of research that needed uh, to, to be done and, and still needs doing around, around COVID. And I guess how, how did you decide which research you wanted to focus on? That's a great question. And I can share with you that it was on March 15th, 2020, that, um, you know, we had an announcement within London Business School that uh, COVID was becoming quite serious. And so I was teaching an elective on business model innovation at that time, and I had two sessions to go. So I did the last two sessions on the Monday and Wednesday of the following week on Zoom. And I had never done an online teaching on Zoom of that nature before. And as soon as I finished those two sessions, it suddenly struck me that there was massive potential to do shared medical appointments virtually. Because if you think about it, it's very similar to doing an online teaching experience. And the whole of London Business School went from zero to extremely accelerated instantly. And I figured that this is a really good time to uh, get more um, uh, uh, emphasis and more adoption for the idea of group care, because believe it or not, shared appointments have been around for over 20 years and institutions as prestigious as the Cleveland Clinic are doing them in every medical specialty. And when we were hearing all of this uh, hoo-ha about how all the tests that are available, uh, there's a huge shortage of tests and that the really good tests like the RT-PCR or the ELISA tests were super expensive, but then there were all these tests of really rubbish quality. And the idea we came up with, a very simple statistical idea was, why don't you take that cheap test and do it two times? Because then you would improve the quality if you combine the answers from doing it twice on each patient. Yeah. And again, because I had been uh, working with um, uh, Imperial with uh, Lord Darcy, Ara Darcy at Imperial, uh, we were able to connect and build on that relationship. And so I also started that work and then brought in others, um, a student from LBS who is now at MIT, um, you know, a colleague at Oxford, another colleague at London Business School. So that's um, the other work that I have personally been very engaged in through the pandemic, aside from the virtual shared appointments piece that I'd mentioned earlier and that Julia, you and I have worked so closely on for many, many months. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, it's such a great idea. And um, even combining tests, doing multiple tests or even three tests, uh, the, the more tests you do, the, the greater probability that you will. And so it more, more, like you said, becomes about actually the, 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 the time it takes to to do the tests and and can you convince people to actually take take time? Um, great, Ekta, do you want to do the next question? Yeah. So um, at the start of my entrepreneurial career, we um, I um, worked with a team of people 
uh, one connected to a university and um, a practitioner. And we achieved something that no one had ever achieved in the UK before, which was a, a passive house retrofit. And we um, won lots of awards for it and things. And I've always been interested in the combination of research, innovation and entrepreneurship to create value. You've been working on this for most of your career. What sort of learnings have you got in order to sort of make us all think that way and sort of systematize it in a way? That's a great question. And I think that is where a lot of excitement is. So if you think of research, research can sometimes be passive because research can be about examining data that was previously collected, which is called archival data, and uh, understanding uh, relationships. That's very, very valuable research, but it isn't as hands-on. When you start thinking about prospective research, like running randomized control trials, that can become extremely hands-on because that means you have to work with an organization. And, um, you know, I've had, um, I've been lucky enough to work with some fantastic organizations um, in uh, multiple uh, continents, actually, which I'd love to say more about. But when you work with an organization, then that's where that whole innovation part becomes very important also, because depending on the organization, the appetite for innovation can be very different. And I think some organizations I've worked with have been amazingly, amazingly innovative and highly entrepreneurial. And that's when the research also flowers. And certainly the Arvindai Hospital is a standout on that front. Uh, I can share with just with that shared medical appointments, group appointments research that I was so excited about um, so long ago. And when I, when I realized that most people haven't heard of this, I started thinking, why is it that people haven't heard of it? And why are they so obstinate and against trying it out? And that's when uh, after, uh, you know, talking to various hospitals in the U.S. and in the U.K., um, I stumbled onto the Arvindai Hospital and they were very keen. So I didn't even suggest to them that they should try shared appointments. I, I wanted to see the way they do their surgery and just a little bit of background on this hospital. This is the biggest eye hospital in the world. They are serving two-thirds of the volume, the eye volume of the NHS at one-hundredth of the cost oh and at extremely Amazing. high quality, exceedingly high quality. And part of the reason is they basically re-engineered cataract surgery. And they, they're famous for this. And I knew about this, so I wanted to see how it, uh, it met mm -hmm. someone at Davos who had a, a connection to their... Um, you know, their uh, number two person at Arvind. So I emailed um, Tulsi Ravida, who's the executive director of Arvind. And he said, yeah, sure, you can come and see cataract surgery, but you're coming from the West. You need to tell us something new. So that's about that innovative and entrepreneurial spirit. You know, let's take advantage of every person who walks through our door to try and learn something. And when I talked to them about shared appointments, and then I saw their amazing cataract surgery, 10 surgeries being done in one hour. And I came back to London. After a couple of weeks, I got an email saying those shared appointments that you talked about, we've got a problem with glaucoma. Glaucoma is a disease, unlike cataract, you can't just solve it by doing a surgery. It's a, you're going blind. You can stop the rate at which you can reduce the rate 
of the decline of eyesight. But for that, patients have to keep coming back literally every three months to get their um, eye drops adjusted and have that doctor appointment. But the sad reality that Arvind was facing, and glaucoma, by the way, is the number two cause of blindness worldwide. Yeah. The reality they were facing is that only 15% of patients diagnosed with glaucoma were coming back uh, four or five years after they had been diagnosed. They were just dropping off. And so they felt that the shared appointments, because of that relationship building uh, among peers in the appointment, they felt that might spark uh, them to come back. But for me, the most fascinating learnings were in how Arvind went about. I mean, they're the biggest eye hospital in the world. So it's like a huge corporate. And you guys know your investors, you know, the huge corporates are not often the ones who do the very radical innovation. But they managed to pull off. Uh, and eventually did a huge randomized control on on uh, shared appointments, which I was involved in, along with um, a fantastic PhD student, Nazdeh Sanmez at London Business School, and co-author um, uh, Ryan Buell at HBS. But before we started that shared appointment, they did this baby step experimentation, which was all about how entrepreneurs behave. They didn't go straight to a 1,000 patient medical trial. They didn't even first yeah. try it with doctors. They said, we're not going to waste our doctor's time. Let's try it with counselors. Yeah. Let's see how that works. Exactly. And then they did some other baby steps. So that's where I think, that's where there's the power and excitement of having that entrepreneurial mindset, even if it is in a huge organization. It could be in a startup, but can also be in a huge organization. And that's very valuable to make research go forward. Do you think do you think that entrepreneurial mindset has come from the fact that that of the individuals and they're just entrepreneurial individuals or just um, or do you think it's because of the scale of the problem that they were facing that they were forced to sort of be more innovative and entrepreneurial? That's an excellent question, Ekta, and it's very much what the second thing that you said. Yeah. So there, this organization was founded by one individual who was a retired uh, doctor. And he had this vision that he wanted to cure, um, uh, he wanted to just, uh, any blindness that could be cured, he wanted that to be cured. But if you think of the scale of the problem, yeah. uh, there's a huge amount of blindness in the world. And so doing the same thing better would not be a solution. So they really had to think about doing things completely differently, whether it was their cataract surgery where they re-engineered the surgery. They do it like an assembly line. And they have 15 people in a surgical theater. And of those 15 people, two might be, two would be the trained surgeon. And the remaining are uh, young women with a high school education who've been trained up to do all the parts of the surgery that anyone except the surgeon can do. It doesn't yeah. need that level of expertise. So it's very much the latter. And, uh, but it's, 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 I think to exceed in that, you do need that vision which their founder had to push and to find every way to make innovation, not a, uh, a retreat activity or a once in a while thing, but literally all the time, every second mm -hmm. thinking about how can we improve what we're doing dramatically or even the small uh, increments, refinements.
So actually, this is really this is really great because what you're saying is that it was a clear, simple vision that was clear to everybody in the organisation, and then a massive problem that they needed to fix that then made it clear to everyone that they had to where they needed to take risks and how they needed to be much more entrepreneurial and innovative to meet that very clear vision. That's just the best story. <laughs> so thank you for that. It's an inspiring story. Yeah, it really is. And and I can share Ekta another part of that. Uh, which is that, so this is a huge hospital, a huge organization. We all know what's happened during COVID. People are being fired left, right, and center, right? Because costs need to be reduced. There's reduction in revenues. Arvind decided they would not fire a single staff member. And when I asked Tulsi Ravella about this, he said, it's all about relationships. He said, you can always buy a resume. You cannot buy a relationship which is a deep insight. So there is, uh, yes, they had this uh, situation where they have to solve these massive problems uh, with very limited resources, but they also had this very powerful rela uh, realization that relationships are very fundamental to solving these kinds of problems. Yeah. It, it's such a, it's such an amazing, amazing story. And I, and I guess it, um, I one thing I wanted to ask, which was around the communication that the learnings that you have about how they actually ended up communicating to draw people into to this research, because that in itself seems to have been a, a critical success factor. It was definitely a success factor, Julia, because uh, to have a 1000 patient trial is a big achievement because most prior research, there's been research done on shared appointments, but that kind of scale is very hard to get. The way they went about it is they first were very careful. So it took two years to come to that stage of running a trial and then the trial ran for four years. So this is a very long term. And so they're in the, you know, they've committed for the long term and which is something you guys do because I've heard you and uh, Saul and other uh, venture capitalists say that when you are, investing in a company, you're thinking of a 10-year horizon. That's a long horizon. Or longer, if or, needed. Exactly. So so Arvind also was starting this very long process. And with, with the initial experimentation, they figured out uh, how to do these shared appointments in a reasonable way. And then what really helped us is their volume. I mean, this is a hospital where on a daily basis, they have hundreds and hundreds of glaucoma patients walking through the door. And that's why we were able to recruit patients and get to this huge volume. So that's one huge benefit that when you're at that kind of scale, usually most organizations with that kind of scale have become very closed and unable to innovate. But I, I actually like to um, uh, think of their organization like a CNM, which is waving its arms around and trying to catch ideas and then when they catch the idea they're quick with it but because they have that scale they can benefit from the scale if they're able to move quickly yeah exactly um and i guess a follow-up question to, to that is is obviously it's been like it seems like a hugely successful um piece of piece of research um and really really impactful but what I guess on the flip side of that, what, what have you seen as being key challenges um, with bringing academic research to, to, wide, uh, to wide audiences? That's a great question. 
it is very difficult to break into new community. So I'm a business school professor. I am very comfortable and swim happily in the uh, business community and in my own operations management and innovation communities. Uh, when you, uh, uh, when I started getting interested in doing this much more hands-on work with um, healthcare provider organizations, it takes, um, it's not easy to break in. And in terms of your question about how do you break in and have impact, I basically decided to take a multi-pronged view. I realized very quickly that in the healthcare industry, people value evidence massively. You know, there's evidence-based healthcare is important. But then building evidence can take, like you've seen, seven or eight or nine years. So what I decided to do was to keep seeking ways to build that evidence, which took some time because I knocked on many doors, but at the same time to start building other kinds of impact. So for instance, I thought, why not uh, uh, try and uh, influence executives and uh, policymakers? So we wrote a Harvard Business Review uh, article, which which approached that audience. And that actually helped because folks who read that article, uh, some of them were healthcare providers, and then they, they um, contacted us and said they would be interested. And then further downstream, I also uh, decided to start um, creating thought pieces about um, these sorts of radical innovations in the healthcare um, uh, targeted top medical journals. So uh, New England Journal of Medicine, Nature Medicine, etc. If you can get ideas, even if they're not evidence, but if they are ideas which are describing um, these uh, major innovations, that is also a step which can help. Because then, again, you know, among all of the folks who read these articles, some of them are innovators and some are entrepreneurial. And um, I think you guys know that entrepreneurs are very clever at quickly building networks. So if you read something that sounds interesting, you're going to reach out to those people who um, created that piece and ask, look, how can I advance this? Or do you know others who you can connect me with, et cetera? So all of those means have over time uh, been very, very useful. And uh, certainly with shared appointments, what has also helped is that the WHO has become very interested because uh, partly because Arvind is a WHO collaborator center. And so now I'm starting to work with the WHO. And once you uh, start doing that, they have, of course, connections across multiple continents. So uh, they recently uh, introduced me to an amazing organization, highly entrepreneurial, which was created in New Mexico by uh, Dr. Sanjeev Arora. It's called Echo. And what he built was a platform by which um, a healthcare specialist, like a liver cancer specialist or a, uh, a particular kind of embolism specialist, how they can uh, amplify care delivery by teaching uh, care providers who might be nurses or uh, primary care physicians um, how to uh, give this specialist care. And a lot of that also 
comes to relationships. Because if you think of it, if you're sitting in some village in New Mexico and a Pueblo in New, New Mexico, you've got a relationship with that local provider. It is very hard for you to go to um, Albuquerque, for instance, to go to a specialty hospital. Yeah. And so this thing which he started in New Mexico has now become huge and it's being done all over the world. And what the uh, link with them has enabled is we are now talking about how can we train people to do shared medical appointments, group delivery or virtual group delivery using that platform to actually train the providers because you can't just walk in and do one of those things. You can, but it would be much better if you're trained in it and you also learn how to collect data because that can also take training. And that can then build that evidence which um, the medical field uh, views as very valuable. Does that answer your question? Yeah, de definitely. I think what you, what you said initially about the, so the biggest challenges with, um, with, getting, with getting the research to, to larger audiences um, about how challenging it can be to break into new networks um, when, when you are... Um, I guess when what it seems like on paper your your focus or your expertise is, but but really you have an insight or a unique perspective on a new space. So building like credibility and building those networks can initially be really really hard. Um, and I, I I definitely really really resonates with with us as us as well. Um, and I guess we've we've seen that. And I and I think it's um, it's definitely something that is that is worth considering because like you say, the, the best ideas um, often come from those who are not, don't have tunnel vision or are not so in the weeds that they can't look up. Um, and so I, I, I really think that it's also something that we should more broadly be, be open to um, and not be afraid of having new perspectives join us. Yeah. Exactly, definitely. It's also about giving yeah. ourselves time to do that as well, isn't it? Because um, many of us get too busy and, and I think it's really important that we understand that we've got to give ourselves time to look up and build those relationships and talk to those people. And I know that as a, as a, as a CEO of a growing business, I often didn't have time to do that. And um, I think the advice to people who are starting their own businesses is to make sure that they make time to do that. Um, I totally agree, totally agree. <laughs> And that's a strategic, that requires a strategic yeah. vision yeah. to make that important, to give people time to build those relationships, which yeah. are uh, potentially uh, on first glance, not useful because they are further relationships. Yeah. But there can be huge value from uh, building relationships with very different entities, very diverse uh, entities, which have very different ways of thinking, ways of doing Agreed. Um, so, Kamalini, what's next? What are the topics that you're thinking about sort of getting involved in next? I'm definitely continuing on the topics that I'm already immersed in. That's yeah. for sure. So, I, you know, the work on uh, group appointments, uh, virtual group appointments, I'm very uh, keen on. And I want to share also the work that Julia and I uh, have been very involved in, for which uh, we are uh, currently again uh, looking to do more with that. As Julia mentioned, 
uh, at the start of the pandemic, I think last uh, April or May, uh, she reached out to me and said that uh, with Phoenix Court and her role at Phoenix Court, uh, they were uh, very keen to uh, do something that could help the local community in Summerstown and uh, to help them with COVID. And so we, uh, we, we realized that uh, virtual uh, group appointments, which were done, which would be done with an NHS nurse and bringing in uh, folks from Summerstown to uh, basically address their questions about tests and about the vaccine. Yeah. because there are so many unanswered questions and people have um, a lot of misconceptions uh, and they haven't, they, many of them don't have access to information. We felt that, and some people are hesitant to ask. So we felt that if we could do uh, uh, shared appointments in groups with a trained NHS nurse, as Julia mentioned in the UK, now nurses are getting training in how to do these types of appointments. We felt that we could, um, we could really increase vaccine uptake in um, uh, communities where it was quite low. So when we were looking at central Camden, we could see a huge disparity between the white British community and, for example, the Somali community, where at one point the uptake in that community was 40%, while in the white British it was well over 70%. And so we had thought of many ways to increase uptake, including reaching out to local leaders. And this came very much from Julia's massive engagement with the community. As she said, she's on the board of Edith Neville uh, Primary School. And through that and her other connections, we spoke to many, many people in the community. And what we learned is that people listen to local leaders. And so we were starting to talk to imams. We were building uh, ways to uh, build um, uh, short videos with imams, religious leaders, talking about uh, the importance of vaccination to their communities. And uh, this was in fact going to be a research venture because we decided that again, uh, whenever you do something like this, and this is where I think it was very powerful working with Julia and you know, Julia is in the end um, an investor. And I think investors are always thinking about when you start something, how can it become very big? And the idea with doing this was if it is a research venture where we can get good outcomes, that is what will help to make it so that it wouldn't just be in Summerstown, but you could replicate this model again and again in many different communities all over the UK or in different parts of the world. So with that in mind, we um, started a, a research project and I brought on uh, very different types of expertise. So two economists, Anandi Mani, who is uh, a well-known behavioral economist at Oxford, and a soldier, Delhi, who has uh, done a lot of work in healthcare economics. And we also had uh, team members from UCL and we uh, linked with uh, a big primary care network, Central Camden Primary Care Network, which has a, a scope of 70,000 patients. We also brought in uh, Primary Bio, who are an IT provider. And again, here it was fascinating to be working with Julia's team because the speed with which these things happened was amazing. 
And that I think is coming from that whole entrepreneurial spirit and that uh, experience working with many startups and knowing that you just need to open doors and make things happen quickly. So over uh, a, a, a many, many month period, we worked with all of these different entities. We built a research protocol and uh, the way it works when you are doing any research that touches NHS patients is you need to get an NHS research ethics approval. Now, I'm a faculty member at London Business School and I was the chief investigator of this project. And uh, London Business School had only on one prior occasion, many, many years ago, had a faculty member who had tried to go through this process. And so we then, uh, you know, Julia very quickly helped to bring on expertise ethics expertise, which we brought into the team from um, another university. And so we had all these pieces in place and we submitted our protocol, which was a clearly um, defined, uh, quite simple experiment to, uh, uh, to test whether shared appointments could help to increase vaccine uptake. I have to say that the process is something which I hope will change in the future. And I'd like to point out that uh, after the uh, review in which uh, I was interviewed by 10, uh, a panel of 10 people, I got a phone call, not a letter, because usually you would get a letter with the outcome. And I received a phone call from somebody who was on that panel who said that he wanted to talk to me about it. And so when I talked to him, he told me it was going to be a unanimous reject. I asked him why. And what he said is, off the record, if medical school researchers had tried to do a business project, they wouldn't really have known how to do it. And here was a business school researcher trying to do a medical research project. This was off the record. On the outcome, which we actually received, what we were told is that there were too many outcomes that were being measured. There's a simple way to reduce a large number of outcomes, which is to remove some of those outcomes. Yeah. This, to me, was a signal of a broken process. And this very much goes to what Julia was saying earlier about how we live in compartments. And there's a lot of anxiety about uh, bridging different um, compartments or different pools of knowledge or pools of expertise. So that's where I really hope in the future, you ask me, you know, what do you want to do in the future? I certainly want to find ways to break those uh, barriers which make this difficult. I've certainly found from my experience, again, that relationships are fundamental. Yeah. And the, the times that I've managed to break these barriers is through relationships. And I think we need to escalate this and do much more to ensure that we can bring different types of thinking to every problem. So when you think about healthcare problems, uh, we saw with COVID an incredible sharing of expertise. And I have doctor friends who told me that it was stunning how doctors from all over the world were sharing information with each yeah. other and just helping to make things happen. And at the same time, there are other deep pools of expertise, like social sciences expertise. And we really want to make it so that that type of expertise can also swim with the other types of expertise.
these when the problems that require very quick action to resolve. Uh, I mean, absolutely. And, and I think there are so many learnings there, um, Camelini. And I think, um, like you say, I, I think our experience is actually, uh, we're not the only ones that, that have gone through this. So I think there are lots of learnings um, with just on a process level, um, and and we and we'll can touch on that in, in a little bit. I I'm also um, just wanted to say to everyone who's who's in in the room that um, if you want to ask questions, we'll soon be um, going to some questions. If there are any, please feel free to put up your hands, and then we'll um, we can move you up to um, to be able to speak. Um, but I guess what I what I wanted to to just say that. I guess with with regards to the learnings for this particular um, project, um, and and actually the fact that Camellini, you know, the model that we built and and all of the learnings that we that we got from, you know, from like you said, from speaking to the community, from for, from developing um, communication that would be sent via SMS and all of the different the the different aspects that we looked at in order to make the research so inclusive um i think are um are tremendous learnings that we're taking to and as, as you said like this is all also being discussed with the who um and and that the, exactly the protocol even if it can't be used in in summer's time will hopefully be able to be used elsewhere um so so for me uh, again and uh you know it was it, it was an an immensely enjoyable and a huge learning experience and i know that the um that the community members that we worked with were also extremely appreciative for the i guess the the care and the the attention um you you drove to for us to to speak and to get feedback form action that will unleash the possibility of social sciences thinking being involved in the healthcare agenda and in healthcare research. Brilliant. Yeah, that's it. That's a great request. And I and, and, and it actually can be even more more broadly than that, because I think that uh, even um, when when we speak to other academics who are within um, the, the science sphere, the the ethics approval process is, um, is, is, is challenging on many levels, actually. And so I do think that it's important to, to enable um, the cross-pollination of, of ideas, but, but even, even at a meta level, um, in, improving the ethics approval process for, for research is something that I think needs to be, needs to be looked at. Um, is there um is there anyone that has any questions or any 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 um yeah feel feel free feel free to put up your hand and and while you do that or if anyone has any any further thoughts Ekta do you have any any comments I, I suppose um I mean the overall theme of um this week's health matters have, have been about relationships and building in different perspectives to solve problems which um as an entrepreneur is i can see that is extremely valuable and um i think anything so I, my time at the nhs um at the royal free is spent the reason i was engaged is because i have a commercial background and i have a different perspective and that is recognized as having value 
And I think the more we can institutionalize that and systematize it, the greater the outcomes are going to be. So, you know, I completely agree with everything that you've said. And they're doing it in small pieces, but I suppose great big institutions like this take a long time <laughs> to change. And I guess, you know, for many reasons, we're seeing this particular period in time as a as a turning point and in, in which to speed some of these um, changes and ways of thinking up. And if we can if we can use this terrible time as having some small silver linings, those are the sorts of things that we should put, push for. Absolutely agree. Kamalini, any, any parting thoughts if there are no other questions? I'm happy to take questions if people have. I, I see. I actually, yeah, no one's put up their hand yet. But that's okay. <laughs> um, Kamalini, any, any final thoughts from you? I could share with you... Um, Again, on this idea of having very, thinking of diverse ways to solve problems and the entrepreneurial spirit that uh, you have talked about, Ekta and Julia, I can share uh, on another research project where, um, and often, you know, being a faculty member in a university, in a school, uh, sometimes research project ideas come from relationships built with students who then become alums who go to do important and impactful things in the world. Uh, we had an alum who uh, was involved in a social business in a slum in India, in Mumbai, where they were looking to oh, improve yes. the nutrition of slum dwellers. And um, I have a PhD student, uh, Alp Sungu, who's currently at London Business School, who, um, you know, we said, hey, Alp, why don't you go down there and see whether there could be um, a research project that you could uh, create around this. And when Alp went down to uh, Mumbai, he discovered very quickly that in this slum, everybody has a smartphone. The poorest people who are earning very, very little all have a smartphone. And what he also realized is these are not people who uh, can read and write. So a lot of their usage was WhatsApp video calls to family. So keeping those relationships and then entertainment usage. And um, because we're poor, uh, we started to wonder whether this kind of massive usage of uh, data could result in data shortages later on in the month. And, you know, people like us, you never think about data shortages because it probably automatically goes into a, uh, an add-on plan. But yeah. these people are too poor to buy an add-on plan. And what we found, uh, again, through a, a randomized control trial with a thousand patients involved, a thousand people, not patients, slum dwellers involved, was that if uh, people were given a data plan which had daily caps on it, so you couldn't burn your whole data even if you wanted to, then it becomes much more likely that information that you send about life improving um, health camps or uh, finance information, et cetera, it could have been, uh, they're more likely to access this information and actually get to real outcomes. So this, uh, to me, uh, symbolized many things. One is being on the ground, you can discover things. And, uh, you know, that is about being entrepreneurial in research. 
Um, a second thing was um, I can share again with Alp's experiences on the ground. Um, you know, when he went there, he's from Turkey. He doesn't uh, speak uh, any Indian language. So he needed an in interpreter and he was trying to find an interpreter and he found someone good and he said, what can I pay you? I'll pay you as much as you want. And what that kid who was going to be his interpreter said is, I don't really want any money, but if you will call me frequently every now and then, you know, for the next many, many years, that's what I want. What is that? Wow. It's a relationship. Yeah. Right? That's yeah. amazing. So, so I wanted to share share that uh, that project is very interesting because who would think that data plans are going to be relevant to healthcare? Yeah, yeah. but they are. They can be, and so that's where just trying to use every idea and going to as far away places as possible in terms of uh, uh, discipline or uh, capabilities can be super helpful. Yeah. Well, that's that's a, such an amazing story, uh, and 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 so so insightful of your of of your collaborator, um, and and amazing to hear the feedback from from his interpreter as well. That's just um, absolutely amazing. Um, if there are if there are no further questions, then perhaps we can we can finish there and. Um, and really just wanted to thank you, Camelini, for, for joining us. It's been such um, such a wonderful uh, time that we spent uh, chatting to you. And thank you for sharing all of your wisdom. Um, I really learned so much from you. And, um, and I think, like you say, you know, uh, entrepreneurship, innovation, uh, in in research um, and and the cross collaboration of ideas, I think, are so important to um, yeah to propelling get to pro propelling where we are in the delivery of, of healthcare. Thank you so much. It was so much fun. Thank you so much, Julia and Ekta. It's always wonderful to talk to you guys. Thank you.